0: And you are very welcome along to this week's edition of the SNAP. American Football and Off the Ball is brought to you in association with the Aer Lingus College Football Classic. Navy versus Notre Dame at the Iwa Stadium on August 29th. Check out collegefootballireland.com for game tickets and more. As ever, we've got Kean Fahy and Ronan Mullen with us uh, from their respective bunkers. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome this afternoon. Um, Kian, I presume your draft prep is finished at this point, you know, you're, as a, a noted draft Nick. All your work is done. You can just sit back and relax and let the rumours wash over you for the final few
1: days. No, not really. I don't, like... People have a, in the NFL world have a tendency to rush to get everything done in time for the actual draft. But I, unless I'm specifically covering the draft that year, I, I tend not to because I'd rather spend my time, because there's, there's six months here of an off-season to work with, I'd rather spend as much time as possible. So I actually only cover the top 20, or top 30 to 40 prospects initially. And then once players actually get drafted to specific spots, you find guys who are worth watching because you can't watch all 250. So I'm actually... like. I, I, I'm enough for covering the first round, which is the important thing at this stage, but it's still have a lot of work to do.
0: It is, I mean, it is. I was, I was kind of joking, to be honest. I, I don't expect anybody at this stage, uh, apart from the people who, whose job it is. A lot of people to, do. The ones whose job it is to scout college football as well, because, um, I, I, like, really, you can't actually know how well somebody's going to do until they've been through the preseason, which this year there's not going to be one, and then have played a few games you can actually. See whether or not they are adapting to the challenges of the NFL.
1: Hell, even then, like we talked about Brashad Perriman last week. He, he failed for three years and then he finally got found his right fit in Cleveland and then showed his consistency and became a better player, even even better player in Tampa. Like Bill Belichick has the right idea with this. He doesn't care about getting the top picks while well, he obviously he cares he would rather have top picks but his his preference is to stockpile draft picks and get as many as possible because he knows this hit rate is 50 50 he knows this is a lottery so you it, it's a great thing for getting everyone very excited it's a great thing for talking every player up like joe borough has become the greatest quarterback in the nfl already without taking a step in the nfl even though he's got to compete with the likes of patrick Mahomes and lamar jackson so it's very unlikely that he'll be anything more than above average quarterback but we have to hype up this thing every year we have to get excited but it's, it's it is a very fun thing to do.
0: It is. And actually, it is kind of exciting. Uh, I, certainly when there's nothing else happening in the world right now, apart from the draft, I've, I've, I was a little bit kind of 10 days ago, I was like, when is the draft even? And then I started to go, hang on a second, this could be quite interesting. And uh, even all the crap around how they're going to do it. The fears about the uh, various Zoom calls being hacked. I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to see which of the team's inferior security infrastructure is the one that ends up getting hacked. My money's on the Bengals, but uh, let's wait and see. Ronan, as a Ravens fan, with a very well-stocked team at the moment, what do you want your team to do in the draft this week?
2: Well, in all the mocks, I see Patrick Queen seems to be the guy that they're being linked with a lot. And I'm not sure he's actually going to be there by the time the Ravens come around, because as much as uh, Burrow got all the credit coming out of college on that team, Queen was definitely the defensive MVP. He was just a lights-out, three-down player, so... I think he could possibly fill the void that CJ Mosley left behind. And then obviously, Marshall Yond is a huge loss for the Ravens, given that they're a run first team now, and that's a gaping hole in the middle. So I think they're going to have to try and address that as well. So um, another wide receiver, a big body. Like I love Marquise Brown, but I think they need a big body target for Lamar in games like where they came unstuck last year, where he probably just needs to throw the ball up there and hope somebody can make a play. Precision can go out the window in the playoffs, as we know. So. I think he could probably do it a few more assets like that.
0: And how many picks are they like well stocked? They didn't they haven't traded away any picks or any of that kind of stuff.
2: They've got three picks in the first two rounds, so they should be able to address a couple of their concerns anyway. But like like anything, the draft is going to be determined by the the opening sequence because if it for some unbelievable reason the Bengals take someone other than Burrow, like the dominoes will fall accordingly and things will just start flying and as we see in every draft, speaking of wide receivers for example, once the first wide receiver goes they all start to go because people start panicking, and as uh, a keen so uh, acutely sort of frames C.D. Lamb, but he's only he's one of many in this um, in this draft. So I think people will be will be flush with options if they're looking for a wide receiver.
0: Yeah, Kim, we should briefly talk about this because a lot of people will be tuning in for the first time, going, "Okay, I'm going to pay attention finally to draft talk because it is next Thursday." There are about 12 receivers that people believe will be capable of playing in the NFL next season as rookies, and uh, some of them will be capable of being superstars in their first season. And most of that group of the first 12 receivers, people will believe could be either first day starters or certainly could play 10 to 12 games and contribute in a meaningful way. So that's, that's not generally the case. People are talking about this as a historic wide receiver class. Is that accurate?
1: Well, the first thing I'd like to say is uh, if Patrick Queen gets to the Ravens, a lot of GMs should be fired because that's just unfair. That would be the perfect fit for them. He's an outstanding player. Yeah, this is a wide receiver heavy class. And it's interesting. Like We talked at the start here about how much of the draft I've covered and how deep I've gone. Uh, I've gone very deep on the wide receivers. And a lot of people talk about the depth of this draft and talk about, oh, we can get a receiver in the second or third or fourth round. I don't think that's the way this draft is. I think most of them are going to be gone in the top 50 because that's the kind of talent that you've got there. So... If you start at the very top, for me, C.D. Lamb is a superstar. I think he's going to be—he's going to go and step into the NFL and make whatever team he lands on much better straight away. His ability to create after the catch, his precise route running—he's going to be a star. Henry Ruggs is a speedster from Alabama who's a little bit more reliant on his fit. There's talk of him going to the 49ers actually at 13, which is a perfect fit there because Kyle Shanahan for, has forever loved the fast wide receiver. And that's the, the pick that I believe that's the pick they traded. Yeah, that is yeah. the tr- pick they traded from the Colts for DeForest Buckner, which is kind of an interesting detail because the Colts desperately need, need wide receivers as well, which is why I criticized that trade at the time, because they might think they're going to get another draft or another receiver in the second round. But I don't think by that stage, when they come on the second round, all the bands bench- seems to be gone. Jerry Judy will be gone, Henry Ruggs will be gone, CD Down will be gone. I think John Mims will be gone. You've got Justin Jefferson there who the Eagles have been tied to constantly and normally when the Eagles get tied to a player, it's it happens. But they don't hide it very often as far as I can tell. Um yeah, this is a, an incredible wide receiver class, but I also, like, there, there's a danger of thinking this wide receiver class has too many superstars. I think CeeDee Lamb is a superstar. I think Henry Ruggs has the ability to be Deshaun Sean Jackson. I think after that, you're talking about guys who are very good receivers, who aren't necessarily AJ Green or... Or uh, Odell Beckham, like, and that's kind of reflected in none of them are projected to go in the top five or the top six or the top seven of the draft, but they're all projected to go within seven, seven to thirty-two.
0: I've heard a I've heard a, a Judy comparison with Odell Beckham, but who's your CD Lamb comparison?
1: Uh, Sammy Watkins was who I thought of, but also Michael Crabtree. So I, I say Michael Crabtree and Sammy Watkins and people think oh, that's not a great receiver. But Sammy Watkins is a superstar talent. He's never reached that level. He's had injuries to deal with. He's played in situations where he hasn't got enough of the ball. In Buffalo, he never really got enough opportunities. In Los Angeles, he was used as a vertical threat similar to Brandon Cook. So that limited how much work he did. He In Kansas City, he's obviously been extremely good. But there's only one ball between Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Kill, and everyone else on that offense. But... So the, the thing about it he has that Sammy Watkins has is that fluid uh, explosiveness, that comfort moving around the field, that ability to make defenders miss, but uh, a more slender frame, but with the strength to still break tackles. Where Michael Crabtree comes into it is you have his very precise route running that Watkins didn't have coming out. Michael Crabtree was incredibly good at setting himself up to run after the catch when he caught the ball, which sounds like a, a very minute detail, but it's a very big detail because if you're setting yourself up to catch the ball facing your quarterback and you're already turning around or you're already moving to space to avoid a hit, it's hugely valuable. Crabtree did all that and was a very, very good receiver until he got a significant injury, but he was never hugely explosive. So when you take that element of Crabtree's game and put it on a guy with Sammy Watkins' level of explosiveness, you're going to have an incredibly difficult receiver to cover and an incredibly difficult receiver to stop when he's being tackled in the open field. And Ruggs
0: is the other one. I think um, I've heard him being linked, actually, with the Raiders. Now, uh, if if Ruggs goes to the Raiders, then apparently that doesn't bode very well for Derek Carr. Is that, is that Am I getting those dominoes correct?
1: I think the fear for the Raiders will be they took the guy called Darius Hayward Bay more than 10 years ago and he was just a speedster as well. But that's not really the case. Rogues is very, very fast receiver or very, very fast receiver, but he's also shown some ability to run routes. These are very young players. They're incomplete prospects. They're incomplete players. He can develop over a route tree. He can develop into more of a, a complete player. Realistic. Statistically, the Raiders' fit is much better with CD Lamb because Lamb is the guy who will catch the ball underneath and make everyone miss. And Derek Carr threw the ball uh, short of the first down line 23rd most often in the league last year, which means he's always throwing short passes and relying on his receivers to run after the catch. So you have those two elements together. If you put Henry Ruggs in there, you're getting a guy who doesn't really work well after the catch, doesn't run great routes underneath, but stretches the field vertically. Tyrell Williams already does that. So I'm not sure if it's a short-term addition, it would be a good one, but that has to, that comes back to the mindset of these teams, which is another element of the draft. From what way are you thinking? Are you trying to think long-term to rebuild? Are you trying to get the best prospects who no matter the position, no matter your position you need right now, or are you trying to fill specific holes so you can be a better team in, the dozen in 2020? The Raiders, I would suspect, are trying to be better in 2020. I don't think Henry Ruggs makes that much sense for them. If they do want a receiver who's not CeeDee Lamb, it would more likely be Jerry Judy.
0: Okay, Uh, one thing to bear in mind here is that every scenario is on the table where games are played behind closed doors next year. No games get played as well. So there's a possibility that the draft order for this year is the same as the draft order for next year. and We never actually get to see these players play as rookies until... Uh, twelve months time. So uh, you know, are our GMs thinking like that? Are they? Are, are some of them going to take the risk and go? I'm going to plug certain holes in my team. I'm going to have twelve months really to to build on it. Or, or do they? Does everybody assume that there will be some kind of season at some point, even if it was say next January, February, March?
1: It depends on your job security, right? Because some teams, there, like one of the interesting elements right now being talked about is if the Detroit lines take a quarterback. And I think if you are Matt Patricia and your biggest problem right now is and you fear your job security and you think you might get fired if we have a season this year and you have a bad year, you take to a Tagovailoa if he's there, because that means you can do that transition that the Kansas City Chiefs did about Alex Smith to Patrick Mahomes and you get an extra year and it doesn't really matter if you don't make the playoffs this year. Whereas other teams are building for the long term and they know already. So I don't think whether we have a season or not, matters or imp- well it matters obviously i don't know if it impacts the thought process that much most nfl people and most nfl coaches are kind of we compete every day we do no, no matter what like look at um tony ferguson in the ufc right now he he had he was supposed to have a fight this weekend and instead it was called off obviously and he's actually making weight today just because he wants to prove he's a psychopath and prove his brand but like that's the kind of way the nfl gms are they're going to do they're going to do and they're going to act as if everything is normal as if everything's going to work the way it is unless it comes down to like a job security issue or a thought process where we're going to do what's best for my long-term option here and my, my long-term job security. The One of the most obvious examples, one of the examples that's holding fruition this year is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who, re, who brought in Bruce Arians and talked up James Winston all that time. And the GM there got a, an extension despite being awful for the first three or four years of his deal. And now we got Tom Brady. So he was just holding on long enough to get Tom Brady. And now he's obviously his job is safe. And
0: look, if they win a Super Bowl with Tom Brady, everybody there has a job for life. Um, Ronan what are you most looking forward to for uh, this very strange draft which was supposed to be glitz and glamour and boats across lakes indoors in Vegas and now all of a sudden it's in uh, the dank dungeon that is the uh, commissioner's basement so I'm looking yeah, forward to seeing it like
2: much like you Jared, I just can't wait to see what, uh, what Roger Goodale's living room is like and Rich Eisen making his return to ESPN apparently it's going to be a dual cast with the NFL Network so uh, there's a few little dynamics going on there but I think the Teams who want to make some brave decisions in this draft and maybe not pander to the fans as they would have done in Nashville last year at that hoop and hollering sort of ceremony, I think, um, like the Jets, for example, who are in dire need of one of those star-studded wide receivers, but they actually need to bulk up their interior, and they might take this opportunity to maybe go for that this year. And if there were Jets fans in attendance, they'd probably be booing them out of the building. But I think that might give them a chance to maybe be a bit more sensible in their selections because uh, as much as I love Brashad Perryman and they've managed to nab him, I think um, they're, they're in dire need of a wide receiver.
0: Yeah, it's 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 making that decision. It's that trade-off of where do you actually draft the wide receiver when when your offensive line is no good or when you have a gaping hole in your offensive line. A lot of people, their eyes glaze over when we start talking about offensive and defensive lines, Keen, but uh, apparently there's five good offensive linemen in this draft and I remember being very bored when the San Francisco 49ers picked uh, McGlinchey where they picked him a couple of years back I was like oh this is very boring turns out he's a, he's an okay quite a, quite a good player not a great player at the moment might turn into a great player if they move him over to left tackle who knows but like there's a strong chance the 49ers bore the pants off everybody and pick an offensive lineman at 13 as a replacement for Joe Staley that's not very exciting I want wide receivers I want like I want two it to fall to thirteen, and suddenly call Shannon to go, ooh, shiny. New, but he's not going to do it. And uh, and you know, should we should we talk about the offensive and defensive line, or is it you know is the world too grim at the moment for us to spend any time on that?
1: Well, we should do that, or we should talk about what Owen Sheehan's going to do this year because he has to get drunk at home now and at the draft, which is unusual for him. Um, I uh, the, the offensive linemen in this class are really interesting in the sense that you've got two very different types at the top. Tristan Wirfs is a right tackle who's normally, or a right tackle who's kind of established as a quality player already coming into the league, but he's not being talked about as a left tackle because he played right tackle in college. But he played right tackle in college because they had a very good left tackle already. So it's a big kind of uh, sorry to follow there. It's a spiel to follow. So he's kind of the, the safe pick. And then Meckey Becton is a very, very talented athletic player who it could be Tyron Smith or he could be Greg Robinson. So that's the big risk who's going to go in the top 10 or top 15. You have a couple of guys, Jedrick Willis, Andrew Thomas. You have guys who are going, are going to make uh, make big impacts, but probably guys you won't really talk about that much over the course of their careers. He, like An offensive line is it's it's probably unlike most things in most sports because one they never touch the ball as offensive players which is a weird thing in itself but two, they are hugely important but they're not usually impactful individually so it's not just that you're drafting someone that no one's gonna see touch the ball it's that if you draft one great offensive lineman and you put them on your already bad offensive line you're not gonna see any actual impact whereas if you have a couple of guys already who are pretty good and you've got one massive hole and you take a great offensive lineman and put him in that Suddenly, your offense becomes really, really good, really, really much better than it was, and your quarterback suddenly looks really good, and your wide receivers are making big plays because they're getting more time, and your running backs running consistently, and you think all these players have just gotten much better. But the reality is, what's happened is, you've made your offensive line better, and your offensive line is more important than any other unit in the league. Already. Well, actually, it's it's a... It's, about, it's a bit misleading because the reality of it is there's five players in that group. So obviously having five players, that's almost half of your offense. Yeah. So that's the most important part of your offense after the quarterback. I would say it's equally as important as the quarterback. A great offensive line can make an average quarterback look great. An awful offensive line can make a great quarterback look bad. So it's a really important aspect of the, of the uh, game. It's a really important aspect of the uh, of structuring a team, but because you're making one draft pick, you can't change the direction of your offensive line. With one one uh, choice, the Atlanta Falcons last year actually took uh, Caleb mcgarry at right tackle, and. Uh, name escapes Chris, Christopher Lindstrom I think it was uh, at right guard both in the first round last year in the hopes of doing exactly that turning their offensive line around in one single year and unfortunately McGarry got uh, got sick actually it wasn't even an injury he had some illness that uh, was wrong with him before the start of last season which disrupted all of that so they tried to get two offensive linemen and be exciting and kind of change the whole shape all identity of their offense in a single offseason and they didn't manage to do it maybe it'll come up Trump them next year actually the Bengals took their left tackle last year same thing happened to him didn't play as a rookie and now they're in a good position here where they have this left tackle coming in who's going to start and they have joe burrow coming in at the same time the left tackle obviously isn't a rookie but they'll be able to grow together as this foundation of an offense so they can be exciting like if you watch tyron smith run 60 yards downfield beating people up all along yeah. the way it's a very exciting thing to see but generally it's understandable why you wouldn't get excited
0: he's the guy who's like 350 pounds and runs in uh under five second 40 is he the guy that we're talking about
1: he is the guy who is like it's like John Malomo. he's like he's what you said but he's got a six pack
0: <laughs> Right uh, two, two quick things the, the boring offensive line the analogy that I always think of is when Ireland played England at Twickenham Mike Ross went off injured Tom Court shifted he's not even a, a tight head but he came on a tight head and Ireland's scrum went back the whole day and we got absolutely blitzed and we got completely annihilated so if your offensive line is full of Tom Courts, players in the wrong position, then you're completely screwed. And that's why if uh, you are picking in the top 15, picking an offensive lineman probably isn't the worst thing of all time. And I just looked it up. Aaron Donald was picked 13, actually, as a defensive lineman in the draft, whenever that was. When would that have been? Uh, 2014,
1: 2014. was so, a great draft, as far as I remember, too.
0: Um, well, obviously, everybody who didn't pick him before that was picking the wrong player, because he's you know, been the best player yeah, in the NFL nice. since.
1: Uh, if you look at that list there's some talented players there ahead of him like Aaron Donald everyone loved Aaron Donald but Aaron Donald this is another aspect of the draft actually Aaron Donald came out as not meeting thresholds for some players or for some teams so some teams have
0: uh, I'm going to I'm going to sorry I'm going to stop you right there I'm going to tell you that number one that year was Jadevian Clowney number two was Greg Robinson number three was Blake Bortles and number four was Sammy Watkins so a lot of teams should have picked Aaron Donald who's next okay so Khalil Mack I would still pick just ahead after that Jake Matthews Mike Evans, Justin Gilbert, Anthony Barr, Eric Ebron from the Detroit Lions. Come on down, Eric Ebron. Who would you rather have?
1: Funnily enough, actually, the, the Lions that year uh, took Eric Ebron because he was a big tight end and needed a big receiver, and that was their reason for not taking Odell Beckham. So that's the kind of dumb decisions you get when you get to the draft. But in that like in that class, Mike Evans there was really good. Yeah, uh, no, there's uh, a few Mack, people. Really good. Sammy Watkins is really good. Never going to realise it. A couple of guys like that. Genevin Clowney similar. But yeah, Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald coming out. Everyone knew how good he was. But a lot of teams wouldn't have even had him on their board because a lot of teams have thresholds where they need a defensive lineman to be a specific height, have a specific arm length, and have a specific weight, or they won't put them in the NFL because they will say you won't be able to hold up against these monsters that are already exist here. That's why you find guys who dominate the college game who don't actually ever turn into anything the first guy i found out this about was freddie barnes i think it was probably 12 years ago i watched a a bowl game where he caught 16 passes or something like that for 300 yards and no one could cover him and i was so confused because he went undrafted no one picked him and because at the time i didn't understand that you could be a player who dominates in college who just doesn't fit in the nfl and doesn't have the required athleticism in the nfl to be the right player and that's why there's also this big risk with players like I, i was a huge mason rudolph fan and he just didn't have that threshold level of arm strength to be effective in the NFL. Yeah. And now it's been made obvious to me that Mason Rudolph isn't a good NFL quarterback.
0: Yeah, okay. Look, let's, let's move on because uh, we could end up previewing this the, the whole way through. We'll definitely talk about it again next week in a bit more detail in advance. And then obviously next Friday, we'll know the first round picks. Unfortunately, they haven't changed the time. They're still going to put this on late night American time, which is a bit stupid when everybody's at home all day anyway and they could have uh, saved us all from staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning to find out who's the 13th pick in the uh, 2020... I mean, how sad is our lives, JP? That's what I'm asking, how sad are our lives? This is actually the, the most exciting thing we have to look forward to for the next week is who's getting picked 13th in the 2020 draft. And uh, I guess thirty-first in, in
1: our case as well as uh, 49ers fans. But no, it's really sad if you start watching it down to the seventh round, then you're in trouble.
0: Well, at least there was there was good pomp and circumstance, and there was like a dolphin picking those picks, and you know they would have characters on. This year, it's like just going to be the blandest thing that you've ever seen. Um, uh, there was some suggestion that they might even have extended it so that a load more undrafted free agents would get in. But anyway, they didn't. Um, we, we did promise everybody that we would talk about Super Bowl 49, which was the uh, Patriots against the defending champions, Seahawks. And um, we've, we've rewatched this this week. It uh, finishes, everybody probably remembers that from the half yard line with two plays left to go and was it 35 seconds left on the clock that instead of giving the ball to Marshawn Lynch, the Seahawks decided that Russell Wilson was going to be the one who gets the glory by throwing the ball to Tyler Lockett on the goal line and Lockett would fall over, break the plane, score the touchdown. The game would have been over. The Patriots would have been defeated. And Russell Wilson would have been the hero of the hour instead of Marshawn Lynch, who we all know if they'd given the ball to Marshawn Lynch, he would have just jumped over the... Offensive line because that's what he does. And if he didn't do it the first time, he would have done it the second time, and the Seahawks would have gone back to back and been a dynasty, essentially. But it didn't happen. Malcolm Butler stepped in because uh, there were several tells, it turns out, on the play, and the Patriots knew this was coming. When you were watching this back, Ian, what did you notice?
1: The play itself or the game?
0: The game, the game. What, when you were, what, what struck you? So you watched it last night, what struck you?
1: Well, if you, this game was fascinating because the way the layers of it are and the way there's such knock-on effects from all little details. If you want to kind of start from that play and work backwards, Malcolm Butler is the one who makes the interception. He makes the interception uh, by jumping a slant route to Ricardo Lockett that they always ran out of a specific formation. There's actual videotape of Malcolm Butler jumping this exact same play in practice leading up to the game because they had scouted the Seahawks and what they like to do in, in, in red zone. And Butler knew what was coming. So Ricardo Lockett was expecting wide open play off of a pick with a player in front of him and Butler jumped in front of him to pick the ball off. It wasn't really Russell Wilson's fault. It was the play call and the play design, the Patriots defender reading it and running into it. Marshawn Lynch just before that had gained four yards on a run from the five yard line. The Seahawks still had a timeout so they could have run the. The wall again and then tried to run the ball again Pete Carroll's uh, explanation was if you throw on that down you have two options if the ball goes incomplete on the next down which makes sense so it's hard to blame him that much but the interesting element of that play is the only reason Malcolm Butler is on the field at that point is Chris Matthews who did nothing after this game did nothing before this game became a superstar he had he had I think over I was at 147 yards something insane so Chris Matthews, where is, he,
0: Chris Matthews is working in a foot locker this, that's the same guy?
1: Yeah, so he got a call to go to Seattle and had to actually get time off work to go and work out and try and get on the team. So he's this six foot five, uh, really athletic receiver who, was, in this specific game, played like Randy Moss. He was jumping and catching everything. He caught a touchdown at the, just before the start or the end of the second quarter. He taught, caught their first big play of the game early in, in the second quarter as well. He caught another big play at the start of the third quarter. And the reason this was happening was the Patriots had Daryl Rivas. They had Brandon Browner, a former Seahawk. They had Logan Ryan. So what Bill Belichick often does is he has specific players take on specific receivers in terms of coverage. So Darrell Rivas played Doug Baldwin throughout the whole game. Doug Baldwin was the Seahawks' best receiver. Uh, Jeremy Kirst was taken by Brandon Browner for much of the game, as far as I remember. Uh, it was Golden Tate on the team. Whichever the, the third receiver was, was taken by Logan Ryan, which was another matchup that made sense. But all that happened was Chris Matthews was left, when he was on the field, to go against Kyle Arrington. So Chris Matthews is six foot five. Kyle Arrington is like 5'9". So it was a major mismatch where they could constantly throw the ball up and let Matthews go out and go and get it. So the knock-on effect of this was later in the game, Kyle Arrington had been beaten so much that Malcolm Butler was getting more of an opportunity. So they're playing with three-point, or they have a a three-point lead at this point, uh four-point lead, sorry, a four-point lead at this point. And he, so the Patriots have all their defensive backs on the field expecting pass, even when they get into the red zone. Butler is now on the field because of how well Chris Matthews had carried the Seahawks' offense through the game. They needed someone else to compete against him. And actually, interesting enough, Malcolm Butler became a failure after. Well, not a failure. He's still starting for the Titans. He's not anywhere that close to being... He became rich. He's not anywhere close to the superstar he was talked up to be at this point. But in this specific game, he also made a great play beforehand on the play immediately preceding the final play or two plays before that where Jeremy curse caught a ball off of a bat out of a tip in the air and he actually made a great play on that play you should, which this. Been-
0: you should explain this because this would be the helmet catch this would be as famous as any other play in NFL history if the Seahawks had actually just punched the ball into the end zone the way they were supposed to do so it's a long long throw from Russell Wilson where the ball is in the air for absolutely ages whoever the, the DB um, marking it, it is, Kers, is it? it actually gets up yeah. makes a play on the ball Curse falls the ball bounces off his knee bobbles again in the air and then Curse catches it and gets up yeah it- and he's like literally
1: like five yards in the end zone. It's not a pass thrown. It's a pass thrown to a receiver. It's like when uh, you throw the ball in at the start of a Gaelic football. Back. The ball is just up between the two of them. And Malcolm Butler makes a great play because go- he has the benefit of being able to go with one hand. He's just trying to knock the ball away. Whereas Curse needs to reach up with two and try and actually control it. And they both hit the ball at the same time, so it bounces off each other. They both fall to the ground. Curse is on the ground, and the ball bounces off his leg, I think, or initially. Then the he bucks yeah. it away with one hand. Yeah, Isn't he? He bucks it away with one hand. And and the official is right there, and funnily enough, an official actually got it right for once. Well, normally, this kind of thing they get wrong, but no one could believe it. Like Al Michaels said, "Oh, this ball falls incomplete," and then he's like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait!" He's all, all surprised, all energetic, and suddenly they see Ox around the precipice of scoring.
0: Yeah, a sensational play, and it looks like their name is on the trophy. It, it it has all the hallmarks of being one of those things where, for the rest of for the rest of time, it gets played and played and played. No one remembers that play now. I would, I mean, obviously everybody involved in it doesn't. And, and we're just talking about it now, Ronan. What struck you rewatching this?
2: Yeah, well, it was the story of two interceptions, Jer. And speaking of the one at the end, like the two things you're expecting when the ball's on the one yard line, either a repeat of when the Patriots let Ahmad Bradshaw score for the Giants to give Tom Brady a chance to go back up and win the game in a previous Super Bowl. And then the other thing, take the time out and save yourself some time. But he didn't either. He let the Seahawks beat themselves almost, and that's exactly what happened. It was a very brave call. Like That's like history is written by the victors, and I wonder, did Belichick himself sort of panic? Is he getting too much credit for that? I'm not sure. But the other interception in this game, which is very pivotal in retrospect, Jeremy Lane picks off Tom Brady early on. And Jeremy Lane in this Legion of Boom is sort of like a Paul Giamatti, best supporting actor sort of character, not, not one of the big names like Richard Sherman or Brown or, or Earl Thomas who was in his pomp. But Jeremy Lane, when the nickel defense was there, he was the guy who came on and looked after the middle of the field. And he was brilliant in the little time he got in this game. But when he got the pick, rather than grounding the ball in the end zone, he tried to return it, got nailed going over the touchline and was knocked out of the game. And poor old Terrell Simon comes in. And gets absolutely lit up by Bill Belichick. Like he puts basically two touchdowns. I think it's Brandon LaFell's touchdown and Julian Edelman's touchdown. Both come off Simon, who was basically a deer in the headlights. So you talk about domino effect. If uh, if the Jeremy Lane stays in this game for the entirety, I think the Seahawks probably would have closed it out.
0: So he's injured in that play. There was it definitely looked like one of the other cornerbacks ended up getting a concussion. Whenever Brandon LaFell scores his touchdown, because
1: Harold Simon, now,
0: is they smack into each other, and you can just kind of see him. I don't know, did he play on after that? I, 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 in the, I was he did,
1: the- he did, but he also was the one who gave up the the game-winning touchdown. that Ronan just mentioned. That's actually kind of a, a fascinating detail of this Seahawks team because they were built with lo- like we talk, I just talked about thresholds in the draft. They were built on the the idea of having long, tall cornerbacks. Richard Sherman, huge. Brandon Broner, huge. Byron Maxwell, very tall, very long. Famous for knocking the ball out with his arms all the time. And Taryl Simon was the same breed, same type of player which is a major problem when you're going against Danny Amendola and Julian Edelman. At the start of the game, Danny Amendola made uh, Richard Sherman miss in space on a quick short throw underneath. He did the same thing again to, I believe it was Simon, later in the game for another big play. When you have guys who are shorter who can move and turn very quickly in space, it was the worst thing for the Seahawks defense. The Seahawks had, like Pete Carroll built the team up from the ground by doing the opposite of what pretty much everyone else did, where he got smaller, faster defensive linemen, smaller, faster linebackers, and bigger defensive backs which worked against most teams because they could keep up and they had special players. But against the Patriots, they needed Jeremy Lane to get injured because once Jeremy Lane went off the field, it had to be Tyrell Simon working against these guys and he couldn't turn the way Jeremy Lane could. And funnily enough, like, tom brady is one of these controversial figures who well not controversial but if you ever criticize him you kind of get you get put in one corner and if you praise him you praise him way too much in this specific game the patriots had brady through two awful interceptions and on the first interception jeremy lane got injured and that led to them being able to move the ball in the second half and move the ball after that injury specifically because they very specifically targeted tyrell simon like ron said in the second interception cliff Avril got injured so he came... He came off the field and didn't come back on at all. So then the passer suddenly disappeared. So in the second quarter, this isn't like... Or in the second half, this isn't like the Falcons Super Bowl where the defense just got tired. On this Super Bowl, where that was by design, the Patriots wore them out. So you can't really say that's a luck. That was well done by the Patriots. On this... In this game... They had Cam Chancellor coming in hurt, they had Cliff Avril go off injured, They had Jeremy Lane go off injured. Julian Edelman should have gone to a concussion protocol late in the fourth quarter when he took a massive hit converting a third and 14. He stayed on the field. So there was a lot of controversy in this game. And Brady, the story of it could have been completely different if those injuries didn't happen because they were really struggling with the matchups initially.
0: Uh, just a reminder, of course, you can be part of our OTB American Football Hub where you get the very latest news around all things Gridiron, including the Snap podcast and the latest news and reports from the Irish American Football League when it restarts. Just head over to Offtheball.com forward slash Club Gridiron to sign up. Um, Ronan, what else kind of struck you? What was what was uh, stuff that you kind of look back and go, Oh yeah, I remember that?
2: Well, Chris Matthews, as as Keen mentioned, like he ended up at the Ravens. It was more of like a it was like a Kiko Makeda sort of performance where I think Andy Gray said a star is born and I think people probably were thinking something similar about this guy because he seemed to have all the assets to be a, a top receiver but as things turned out that was his highlight real moment and he probably would have won MVP mm. if uh, if Marshawn Lynch had to just run that ball in towards the end. Yeah. Um, I just love the dynamics of this whole game were so interesting like um, just from an outside looking in the Patriots versus the Seahawks the Seahawks came out of nowhere on the brink of a dynasty and you compare it to Boston where they're, they're They're flush with all these different franchises across all sports, and the Seahawks, the Sonics were gone in 2008. The Seahawks almost were almost gone from Seattle. I think there was a referendum on whether to build a new stadium. Paul Allen, who co-founded Microsoft, basically said, "I need we should get 300 million together and try and build a new stadium and really kick this on." And it was 51% to 49%, so they were this close to going to California. And from there, Seahawks built this unbelievable thing. I still think, even though they didn't get to win this Super Bowl they're still remembered as a great team, almost like that Armada team in 2002 where they probably should have won multiple championships, yeah. but they, they're they still remembered, I think, as a like a defining point in the game. They almost revolutionised how defence is played. And I just love that Seahawks team, the fact that they never really changed their defensive coverage. They played three deep and just begged you to beat them. They were they just backed themselves so much that they were so good. And the story of the secondary was never really a strength of the, the Patriots until recent years, and... They took Dorello Rivas in, which was a very un-Belichick-like move. I'm open to correction on that, but it seemed a bit strange that he just he paid Dorello Rivas for one season and they basically, they're not each other's kind of person, but they sort of had this unspoken agreement that, right, let's try and get a ring this year and then I'm out of here. So he went back to the Jets ultimately after that. It was kind of like what uh, Deion Sanders went to the 49ers and he wasn't the most popular person in that locker room, but he got them a chip and, and the rest is history. So Richard Sherman obviously as well, I think, I think he was injured going into this game and he, he kind of dipped a little bit from this point on. He had such a resurgence last season, obviously, but Richard Sherman, yeah. who was a household name in America at this point after his interview with Aaron Matthews the previous season. So yeah. do you remember the first game of that season where, I think it was the first game anyway, where Aaron Rodgers just did not throw to that side of the field for the entire game? Yeah. You've seen in recent years, speaking of Dorello Rivas, actually in the last few weeks, Darrell Rivas has kind of given Sherman some stick because he doesn't travel. Uh, he kind of stays on his side. And, and even in this game, I think I counted once or twice maybe that Brady targeted Sherman. So he had this sort of charisma almost, but he had this uh, larger-than-life personality that... Like it, it almost outstripped his play. As talented as a player as he was. I think his reputation was almost as big.
0: Well, that was that was definitely his peak. Um, these these couple of seasons are his absolute peak, where he, he was sensational. And and you know you didn't uh, try his ass with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, despite what Keane was saying earlier on with uh, his Crabtree love. Why don't you marry Crabtree, Keane? That was my overarching thought when uh, you were saying that. Um, the, 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 that
1: that can we just can we just note what Rowan said there about um, not throwing the Sherman side of the field because that season. In the the game Ronan talked about, they just put Devontae Adams out there. this is when Devontae Adams was the Packers' fourth or fifth option. They just put him out there and left him there and didn't bother. They worked with Jordy Nelson on the other side of the field. And Rodgers got criticized for it, but it made so much sense. And then when they met in the playoffs, as far as I remember, they opened that game with a throw down the right sideline to test Sherman. And he either nearly intercepted it or he did intercept it. And after that, they went straight back to not throwing at him again, and that's the level he was at. Because that back, this is the during the years when I used to chart cornerbacks, and it was incredible watching Richard Sherman and Daryl Revis play, and then going and watching the other cornerbacks and realizing just how big the gap was. Revis used to follow everyone around the field, so his success rate was about sixty-five to seventy percent. But he was being he was in, being put in positions where there was no help. Everyone else went and worked on did, did whatever else. Revis took the best receiver that you had and looked after from all by himself and that's impossible no one else has done that like you've got probably the best cornerback to ever play in this game for the patriots and richard sherman is going to be in the top five somewhere he's going to be one of the greatest ever and it's in a league right now where we haven't had a superstar cornerback outside of these two for probably 20 years for probably 15 at least 15 years maybe since champ bailey's when when well, champ bailey was 2008 2009 2010 so maybe maybe 12 years 11 years so it's a really fascinating matchup in terms of you had two quarterbacks who played very differently on the field, but were also completely different personalities off the field. And this Super Bowl was the point where the Seahawks had been built up from the bottom. They were previously beloved when they were going against Peyton Manning and they were... The underdog, and they were the team that shocked the greatest offense ever and shut them down and became everyone's favorites. And then Richard Sherman became more of a focus and he, he became more of a hated figure, and the team as a whole became this hated figure. At this point, it was kind of viewed more as two evil emperors going against each other rather than what normally happens is everyone wants the Patriots to lose except for Patriots fans.
0: Hmm. Uh, just very briefly, you, the NFC Championship game, and I don't want to linger too long in this, but it was absolutely wild. I, I think people have probably forgotten about this. I had completely forgotten about it until I was reading about it. Um, essentially, the Packers are absolutely killing the Seahawks for the majority of the game until about five minutes left uh, and maybe even a little bit less. Uh, Russell Wilson gets the ball, marches down the field, scores a touchdown. Then they recover an onside kick. And I think there's still time for two more field goals after that. The game goes into overtime. Russell Wilson gets the ball, drives the field, 80 yards, touchdown, game over. And that, that might have been the very end It turns out of the Packers' chance to become a dynasty for us to think of Aaron Rodgers as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Because there will always be the, you did it once, Aaron, you needed to do it more than that if you were going to be considered. Tom Brady's peer or in the same conversation as Joe Montana and I'm sure and the biggest
1: takeaway the biggest takeaway from that game was Mike McCarthy not going for it on fourth and short and third and short and that ultimately led led the Seahawks back into the game and Mike McCarthy eventually got gotten rid of in in Green Bay and now the Packers or the the Cowboys have just hired Mike McCarthy to replace Jason Garrett for making the exact same mistakes that Mike McCarthy made all the way through his career
0: it's almost like they didn't uh, watch the tape of this game but I did want to just wrap up by talking about how this was essentially the breakup of the legion of boom you know this this ends ultimately with their best player one of the greatest safeties of all time being stretchered off having broken his leg and flipping the bird to the sideline uh, and the the genesis of it happens this year where pete carroll protects his quarterback who apparently at this stage is uh, you know quite a shy and retiring gentle flower while that's not what the Legion of Boom and the rest of the defensive guys were like. Apparently, Sherman picks off Russell Wilson in a training match and uh, and goes to him and starts giving him shit and Carroll intervenes. So, is, this the, is was it Seth Wickersham wrote this piece as well?
1: I believe so, yeah. So the details in that piece are. No, sorry, sorry, that's that, that wasn't it. Robert Klemko of Klemko. Sports show.
0: Okay, so it was Klemko's piece, and uh, and you know, obviously, everybody denied everything that was in it, but like not to the point where they're suing Klemko, and there's no apologies issued. So we're we're accepting a, a variation of this as as reality. Russell Wilson was sensational in the second half of this game, and sensational after they the last few minutes of the first half where the game was getting away from them and they, they let him do stuff and it seems like Pete Carroll overprotected him to a point and it probably still is overprotecting him a bit
1: I think to understand this team you have to go back to how this team was built so everyone knows Richard Sherman. He's the most famous aspect of the uh, most famous player on the team, basically. He was a fifth-round pick. He was a cornerback at Stanford who couldn't get on the field and was asked to play wide receiver. Jim Harbaugh basically told him he'd never be anything. He's just this guy. And he came out of college as a random player that no one really cared about. And he immediately established himself as a really good cornerback. And he developed into a superstar cornerback and then became potentially one of the greatest cornerbacks ever. And that's the mindset that this team was built with. When Pete Carroll... T- over he had Matt Hasselbeck and Marshall Lynch was there but outside of that it was pretty much a complete rebuild job and he made I think 720 transactions in his first year whatever the normal number of transactions is Pete Carroll doubled it because he just wanted to give every single uh, option a look he wanted to try every single possible player he had a guy like Chris Clemens come in who was a came from anonymity and became this quite quality pass rusher. and the whole mantra of that team was it does not matter who you are you've got to beat out the next guy you've got to always be competing always be beating everyone out and that's how they built this mentality that's how they built great players and this team wasn't built on high first round picks earl thomas was a high, was a high pick uh, bobby wagner was a second round pick but most of the team was built out of lower round picks who were guys where weren't given all everything they wanted in college who were made to work and be, were built into this unit this force michael bennett and cliff Avril were both overlooked free agents who were assigned to the seahawks relatively cheaply because they weren't getting the love from other teams and that became the motivation factor for them so you can go through all of this thing and actually we talk about the final play of the seahawks game uh, pete carroll cho- choosing to throw the ball he also went for it throw the ball to chris matthews with six seconds left at the end of the second quarter and this could all go right back to russell wilson's first season against atlanta when they were at the end of the second quarter in that game a game they ultimately lost when they went for it from a situation where they most teams would have kicked the field goal and it was a mindset thing it was an identity of the team so when you have a look at russell wilson he does not represent that identity at all He's the guy who lifts off cliches. He's very relaxed, doesn't really say anything. He mostly wants to talk about his religion and, and stuff like that. He doesn't really want to talk about how Michael Crabtree's a bum or how he's better than everyone else in the field and all this kind of stuff. So you know you've got this character at the helm of your team who is in complete contrast to what your team has been built on and how your team functions on a day-to-day. So the story of this game is, or the story of the, the story that we referenced is, in a practice during the 2014 season, this season that preceded the Super Bowl, Russell Wilson threw an interception in practice, and Richard Sherman basically went after him and started gloating him and, 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 started going, and the defense started celebrating, and the coaching staff... Kind of got them to stop and they wanted him to not do that anymore because they wanted to keep wilson's confidence up and keep his development up and i can actually kind of understand both sides of this because if you're a seahawks defender and if you're a part of that team you expect everyone to be treated the same way because that's the mantra of the way the team has been built and that's the way the success has come from but the quarterback position is not really like that. It's not a linear development position. It's a, a nurturer position. It's a, it's a position where the quarterback's going to get a, an unfair amount of blame when things go wrong. He's got to be more cerebral than most on the field. He's got to learn develop all the different understandings and coverages and different understandings of how to do specific things. It's such a complex position. I can understand why Pete Carroll was like, no, no, we need to look after this guy and let him develop the right way rather than putting him in straight competition with whoever we've got and Travis Jackson, whoever's there. Which is a little, little, little bit of irony because that's how Wilson actually became the starter in the first place. They had a three-way competition between him, Tavares Jackson and Matt Flynn. So this whole team is fascinating and the 30 for 30 they're doing it in 10 years or whatever it is, is going to be one of the best ever made.
0: Yeah, the lead in the boom themselves and that's your way into the Russell Wilson story. Okay, we've got to go here. Anything else, Ronan, that you want to get off your chest about this game?
2: No, it's it's just such an interesting hearing you recount, that, that dynamic because it's kind of, as much as the on-field decisions are important, the off-field decisions are obviously so important, and the, the leadership aspect of it, you basically, because the teams are in their way so big, the rosters are huge, that you need sort of a, a totem that everything can be built around. And as keen said, he was tot- Russell Wilson was totally at odds with, what, with the ethic that seemed to define Seattle. And you fast-forward just to this week, and you see what the Carolina Panthers have done by giving Christian McCaffrey all that money. As much as they want to keep him around, it's also... The, the amount of money that they've given him, making him the highest paid uh, running back ever, they're basically saying, this is our guy. And they did the exact same thing when Steve Smith was the czar. He was the man around town in Carolina. And Cam Newton came along and it was almost like he wasn't the alpha in the dressing room, Steve Smith, as everyone knows, seen him on TV now. like He's a larger-than-life uh, character. And they, they basically said, bye-bye, Steve Smith. They handed the keys to Cam Newton and he took them to a Super Bowl. And now Cam Newton's time has come and they've said, it's no longer your team, pal, we're giving it to Christian McCaffrey. And that was the case before Cam Newton was even let go. You could very clearly see in the last 18 months or so that they were it was a Christian McCaffrey first team. And I just find that whole dynamic so interesting. It's a unique thing to the NFL, I think, that uh, you almost have to pick what route you're going to go and what's on the field doesn't necessarily jive with what's going on in the locker room.
0: Ronan reminding us all on air that we'd gone 50 minutes of the uh, snap this week without mentioning the biggest story of the entire week. Thank you for that, Ronan. It was an excellent point. We didn't even talk about Christian McCaffrey. Um, I guess uh, we got too excited by the uh, Super Bowl 49 chat. Kian, last takeaway from uh, Super Bowl 49 for you?
1: Um, it's a weird thing of watching it back was how many players who just kind of disappeared like Malcolm Malcolm uh, what's, what's Malcolm Smith was in the other Super Bowl as the most like random M- Super Bowl MVP ever but when you look back on this game like Chandler Jones was very quickly gotten over New England mm-hmm. after this it was Vince Wilfork's final game as a Patriot. Rob Ninkovic retired three years ago, relatively young. Cliff Avril's career was ended early because of a neck injury. Cam Chancellor's career was ended early because of a neck injury. Byron Maxwell got a huge contract, went to the Eagles, completely bombed straight away and wound up back in Seattle. Ricardo Lockett had one of the most devastating-looking injuries you've ever seen yeah. on a football field immediately after and, and during the following season. He's now at Harvard, working as a, trying to help uh, make sports sport safer I'm not sure how you do that but uh, just uh, going through this game and looking at the, the the players who've kind of been and disappeared and it's one of the most fascinating Super Bowls you'll ever come across because it's also Pete Carroll the underdog of building this team from nothing going against a team that's been established and the game itself then being very good just it had everything
0: yeah no it surely did lads great stuff this week thanks a million we'll see you again next week for uh, proper draft analysis and news we'll have proper news where uh, your team will have new players this time next week Uh, That's another snap in the book for you. American football, all of it on Off the Ball is brought to you in association with the Erlingas College Football Classic. Check out collegefootballireland.com for details and you can sign up to uh, our clubgridironofftheball.com forward slash clubgridiron. See you next week.